Nearshoring to Mexico, away from Asia, is one of the hottest business and real estate trends in the world. To break down the topic, we're joined by David M. Krakoff, an American industrial executive with nearly 50 years of experiences operating in almost every country in Latin America and Asia and then some. He spent 11 years as president of the Americas for Toto, a Japanese company that is the world's largest plumbing fixtures and fittings manufacturer. He led the expansion of Toto in Latin America from operating in six countries to 23. David has held several other distinguished executive roles at other industry-leading industrial firms, including Momentum Textiles and Wall Coverings, Authentic Floors and Finishes, Vitromex, KTD, Kaiser Aluminum, Southwire, and AB Electrolux. We discuss how David began his international career, the importance of understanding cultures and languages, processes involved in establishing foreign manufacturing operations, and a comparison between establishing foreign operations in Mexico, other Latin American countries, and Asia, in particular China. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Emerging Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host for today, John Causey. And on this podcast, we have conversations and discuss topics related to commercial real estate in Latin America and Africa. For more information on the company and on the podcast, please visit the website at www.emergingreal.com. Hi, David, and welcome to the Emerging Real Estate Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, John, thanks a lot for inviting me. You're welcome. As a young man, how and why did you decide to enter the crazy world of international business? Well, you know, it's funny. When I grew up, international was not the big focus that it is today. But as a child, I grew up in a, in a neighborhood full of immigrants. Nobody was from here. And really, literally, as you walked around the block in my neighborhood, everyone was from somewhere else. Everybody spoke a different language. Nobody spoke English at home as, as their first language, or they rarely did. So having an international perspective on things was just kind of the world in which I grew up. And then as I went through school and began to work, companies in the U.S. were just beginning to get interested in doing things outside of the U.S. And they would look around and say, all right, who could do something like this for us since most Americans had never been outside of the U.S.? And they looked at me and said, ah, this guy, <laughs> we'll grab him. He'll do anything. Um, and off I went. And mostly it was because I could speak a few foreign languages and was not nervous about going into a foreign environment or accepting a challenge that uh, no one had quite faced before. And that's how I got started. Okay, let's jump into nearshoring, which is the hot trend of the day. What is driving this latest nearshoring trend in America? And do you think it has legs? Well, I guess the big thing, the big theme here, is that why does this happen in the first place? Why is it the case that everybody does not manufacture everything in the United States? And obviously the answer is cost. Um, we make good products here and they're made by good people, but there's something very interesting about the American consumer, whether that's a consumer or an industrial consumer, is that we like to get the best products at the best price. And while there's always a very strong and very large buy America sentiment here, at some point people say, can I get it cheaper somewhere else? And the answer is frequently yes. So as long as you can make a good product with good quality at a more competitive price, the American public is very willing 
to accept things that are made in other countries. So companies began, and this goes way back to the 60s, looking for other places in the world where they could make things with a competitive edge built around usually cheaper labor as opposed to cheaper raw materials or something. So you've got whole generations of American businessmen who were basically trained to run all over the world working for cheap labor. That started sort of the offshoring or globalization trend in American business. Mexico played a huge part in that. And then after Mexico, people went to China and other parts of Asia. In recent years, especially with the pandemic and all the supply chain issues from which we've suffered the last couple of years, these really long supply lines and supply chains have become a bit of a problem. And people found that their businesses were really getting disruptive, disrupted because of the long distances and the difficulties associated with some of the Asian countries. So you find companies taking a second look at Mexico and saying, well, maybe the smart thing to do is to come back a little bit closer to home so I don't have to worry about these incredibly high container prices or 16 weeks, 20 weeks on the water. So what we had was with a very heavily Asia-dependent or China-dependent supply chain, big supply chain issues, big time issues, big cost issues. I order it today, cross my fingers, and hope in 16, 20 weeks I'll get what I ordered. People are taking a second look at Mexico because basically if I order it on Monday, I can make it on Tuesday and I can ship it on Wednesday. You're, the border is right here and it's much simpler. Why didn't American manufacturers just skip the Asia step? I think they first went to Japan and then that, and then China became more interesting. Why didn't they just start off in Latin America? It seems that you have enough cheap labor. It's closer. It makes more sense if you were an alien coming down, looking at where where should this country manufacture its products, Mexico would probably be the logical solution. So since you've been around this, do you have any insights? What was happening in the boardrooms back then? Why did so many American companies decide to go to Asia and not build that capacity in Mexico first? Well, it depends a lot on the industry because I think in general, many American companies took their first steps in places like Mexico. Now, in some parts of the economy, especially in electronics, Mexico was not the natural first step because they didn't have a big electronics industry. So you mentioned Japan, and of course, Japan was the center for much of this activity, and then China. So in that industry, in electronics-related things, people started over there. In industries like the automotive industry and other sorts of industrial enterprises, though, Many American companies did take their first steps in, in Mexico and other countries in Latin America. And there's a long tradition going back 50 plus years of that. We're all familiar with the nearshoring theme where Mexico is playing a part and bringing a lot of the manufacturing back from China into America. But what about other Latin America countries? Can they benefit? And what do you think the future and current role of Mexico will be and the role of other Latin America countries? Well, as companies sort of re-examine the globe and the opportunities that exist to manufacture things and sort of reassess either their willingness to do business in China 
or the degree to which they want to rely on China and be China dependent or Asia dependent, it's a big, it's a big wide world. So there are many options out there. One option, continue doing business in China and other parts of Asia. A second option, as you've mentioned and we've discussed before, is coming back to the U.S. And a third option is all the other countries that are close to the U.S. that may also be good sites uh, for manufacturing environments. Mexico is certainly one of them, and by virtue of proximity, you know, maybe the first one you should consider, but certainly not the only country in the region that offers American companies the opportunity to make things, save a little bit on their manufacturing costs, and then transport them efficiently and effectively back up to the U.S. So there's a lot of options up there. Mexico has been doing this for a long time, and they have a very well-developed program for cooperating with American companies to do it. You see other company, countries doing it as well. There are places in Central America that do it. You have a lot of American companies doing things in places like Panama. You have people doing things in Colombia, Chile. People go back and forth to Brazil often. There's a lot of activity right here in, uh, in the Americas. Do you think it'll be a case where the American manufacturers sort of have operations in Mexico and then they also have it in Brazil and maybe also some in Colombia and then they try to make that work? Or do you think it's more like a Texas companies doing business with Mexico and then through the Mexican operations, they sort of strategically bring in Latin America countries as a as a need, whether it be for raw material inputs or maybe specialized production? Well, a lot of this depends on the magnitude of your individual demand. One of the things when you're building supply chain is you want to keep it as simple, as easy as you possibly can, making sure that all of your needs are getting met. As the first step, since Mexico is literally right across the border, there are thousands of maquiladoras and other sorts of, of plants in Mexico that can take the product, take the raw materials, transform the product, and send them right back across the border very quickly. So in a matter of days, your product can be virtually anywhere in the United States. The farther away you get from the border, the longer that takes, but there are certainly many places that you could manufacture something in Central or South America ship it either by truck, again, it would end up going through Mexico and into the United States, or put it on a boat, come through Miami or other ports in the southeastern United States and enter the country that way. So again, it comes down to the magnitude of your demand. You may be in a situation where one or two plants supplying you is more than enough to meet your needs. If you have a more complex set of requirements, either for raw materials or finished products, you may decide to spread that manufacturing base out a little bit across several countries who may offer you different advantages. And the role of China and other Asian countries, I've read about some of the Chinese manufacturers moving operations to Mexico, probably to be closer to their customer and also to perhaps gain some benefits of the USMCA. Do you have any insights into what China's role will be moving forward? Actually, that's a really good point, and I'm glad you brought it up, because up to now, I've been talking about U.S. companies making this decision. But as uh, U.S. companies have begun to sort of reevaluate 
the degree to which they want to be dependent on someplace like China. In some cases, the American company will look for another partner or another manufacturing resource in a place like Mexico. In other cases, you'll find that the Chinese companies would like to keep us as customers and say, hey, look, we're happy to locate something in Mexico. You're still dealing with us. We're still making the same product you've always bought from us, but we can make it closer to home. It doesn't have to be a Chinese company manufacturing the product in China and shipping it. And you find Chinese companies relocating all over the place. In some cases, they're going to nearby countries such as Vietnam and building places where you can uh, uh, get your things. In other cases, they'll say, well, just as easy for us to locate someplace in Mexico. So there are two, two components to that. Some of the things I see, and, and maybe I'm reading this wrong, but I see Elon Musk announce a 4 to $5 billion plant, and the next day the president of Mexico comes out and says, Elon Musk will only build the plant in the part of the country where my political supporters are. He didn't say that verbatim, but that's what I heard. Two days later, he came out and said, okay, Elon Musk can build the plant wherever he wants. It, it just doesn't seem that Mexico has a regulatory framework in place to maximize how well they can capitalize on this opportunity. We know how China rose through the ranks and how they had a plan and they had a strategy and it was unified and it was all about becoming the economic or the manufacturing engine of the world. So I guess the question is, is Mexico doing enough to capitalize on these favorable trends in their future? And if Mexico doesn't do enough in this regard, Will that business eventually go to a country like Brazil? Okay, well, there's sort of a couple issues that are built into your question there. Going back to the very first thing you mentioned, look, president of Mexico is no different than any politician anywhere else. They all get to, to where they are by having friends and supporters, and they want to take care of their friends and supporters. So somebody big like Elon Musk says, I want to build something in Mexico president of Mexico is likely to say, I can introduce you to somebody who can take care of you. And it's likely to be someone who's supportive. That's sort of a universal law. If that's not what you want, well, don't leave. We've got other places as well. So I wouldn't fault him for saying that. The second thing is, in my opinion, I'm just one guy, Mexico has a pretty good program for attracting U.S. businesses. As a guy who's worked in Mexico now, I think this is my fifth decade. What I found is that many of the Mexican states have really professional, well-developed programs for attracting companies like American businesses and helping walk them through the process so they can get established in their states. I know personally, over the years, as I've been doing site selection, I've had a number of states get a hold of me and say, we'd like you to come down. We'll drive you around, put you in a helicopter, we'll show you what we've got, we'll introduce you to the movers and shakers down here, and it's usually quite helpful, and they're usually very good at it. From a maquiladora perspective, if that's what you're interested in, while you can build a maquiladora almost anywhere in Mexico, you can't go to Mexico City or the highly populated centers, most of those businesses tend to be located along the border, obviously. And I found that the Mexican states, uh, almost uniformly around the border, have pretty good programs to recruit people. And I know, again, in my case, I've worked in states like Nuevo León a lot. They do a 
very, very good job. There's lots of trade fairs, lots of opportunities to come down and in a very comfortable way, get acquainted with the opportunities that are available in the, in the country. So again, my personal opinion is they do a pretty good job in Mexico. Can they do better? Of course, we can all do better. But, you know, culturally, it's not a huge step to go from the U.S. to Mexico like it is, for example, when you go to China. So I give them a very good grade on that. A lot of your career has been dealing with Mexico, and I'd like the audience to learn from some of your experiences and some of the things you've seen. So what are some of the biggest mistakes American companies make when committing to manufacture in a foreign country, in particular Mexico? And do you have any stories or anecdotes that would be interesting for the audience? I think the biggest biggest mistake or maybe the biggest problem that companies run into is you've got to understand that the minute you cross the border, you're not in the United States anymore. Different countries, different rules, different ways of doing things, and that has to be okay. If that's not okay, maybe it's not such a good idea to go. So customs are different, laws are different, rules are different. So for example, I live in the South. Uh, we don't have a lot of unionization in our factories in the South. And when you go to Mexico, everything is unionized. And while the labor law does not require that you work with the union, it's definitely in your best interest to do so. And it just doesn't pay to have the conversation, we're not going to unionize our company, because you can make a lot of mistakes and uh, mistakes from which it would be very difficult to recover. The other thing is, it pays to have these processes led by someone who knows what they're doing who's covered the ground before, so you don't make a lot of freshman mistakes. You asked about stories. I was building a plant in Mexico in the early 90s, I guess, in Monterey, and one of my competitors was also building a plant about 25 miles away from where we were. So we're watching each other very closely to see what we're doing. Um, and I have sort of a process that I use, like you do in, in the industrial world, what the steps are, what I go through, and when I do certain things. And I noticed for a while, and I was getting a lot of heat from my people, that, that my competitors seemed to be going a little bit faster than I was, which doesn't happen very often. So I was wondering what they're doing that I'm not doing. Well, it turns out that they skipped a couple of things that were really important. They hadn't, for example, negotiated um, their program to uh, get electricity and power to their plant. They committed on the land. They started the construction. They got into the power conversation late. And at that point, it turned out that the power was extremely expensive because there was no place else they could go. At which point I got to go back to my company and say, see, we did this first. And that's why we're not having this problem. And that's why we're not spending three times what we need to spend things that you just sometimes don't think about if you're not familiar with the different ways that things are done in other countries. The whole process of finding a labor union, for example, negotiating with the labor union, building a good solid relationship, these are things that take some skill and you get better at it as you go. I mentioned I've been doing this for five decades, but I'm learning all the time and I try to get better all the time. I think I'm a lot better at it today than I was 10 years ago. It's a whole lot better 10 years ago than I was 30 years ago. Uh, it's a process like anything else. And you have to remember that the rules change a little bit. 
programs get modernized and you have to stay up to date as you would in anything else. So cultural things, process things, there's just, it's, it's like anything else. It may look easy from the outside, but there are lots of little boxes you have to check off to make sure that you're doing the right things at the right time in the right way. But again, biggest issue is you're in a different country. They're not going to do things like we do here at home all the time. That has to be okay with me. You've done business in virtually every Latin America country and in most of Asia. How would you compare doing business in Mexico to other Latin America countries? Or is it very similar? How do you view those two markets? And also, how does it compare to doing business in Asia? Okay, well, I guess the first thing is, I've been fortunate. I've done business at a high level, but I started out doing business at a low level. So doing things from the ground up. I wasn't always in charge of the projects in which I was involved. Uh, when I started doing it, I was just a guy on the team. So I ran construction crews and did M&A activities, and negotiated with unions, and worked out deals with governments all by myself before I was the CEO and sort of guiding other people in how to do those things. You know, each country has its own personality and its own way of doing things. And that's not necessarily a reason to stay away from them. You just have to understand that I'm going to someplace different. So Mexico has their own governmental programs. They have business culture that's more or less unique to Mexico. We mentioned Brazil a couple of times in our conversation. Brazilian culture is a little different. The way they do things is different. All the ins and outs of importing and exporting and documentation vary from country to country. And you just have to be willing to absorb all the differences and learn the differences so that you can do them well. You know, I think one of the criticisms that I've heard over the years, American businessmen, is how we like to go somewhere. And let me tell you how we do it at home. It's sort of insistent people do it that way here. And the answer in the foreign country is the same answer that we give when people come here and say that, which is, I don't care how you do it at home. This is how we do it here. And you just have to learn to do that. Speaking the language, for example, while it's not required, it's a big help. And in my personal career, I've always found that being able to speak the language is a big help. Not a requirement, certainly. And most Americans don't speak other languages. But when you can, it just makes doing business easier. In this hemisphere, or in the Americas, for example, it's not that difficult. If you speak English, if you speak Spanish, and if you speak Portuguese, you've got all the countries covered. Not so when you go to Asia. You go to Asia, lots of different languages that can be a little bit more difficult to master. Same thing when you go to Europe or any place else. It just helps to sort of appreciate and learn and respect the cultures in which you're going to be doing business. But Mexico, again, I think is a very good place to go. It's a, if it's the first time you're doing it, it's a terrific place to start. Lots of programs, lots of ways to learn things that are not especially strange. What typically is the process, experience, and timelines for a new manufacturer establishing operations in Mexico for the first time? For example, if you're looking at a new real estate development project, a general rule of thumb for a large shopping mall would be three years from getting on the dusty site owned by someone else to opening to the public. Is there any way to give some insights 
to the audience on some of those general expectations, experiences, timelines? Yeah, there's a couple of different things that you really have to pay attention to here. If you're an industrial company and you're going to someplace like Mexico because you want to have a factory that manufactures things for you, there's really two approaches you can take. There's lots and lots of industrial parks, for example, in Mexico. And if your business is the sort of business that can simply go down, do some scouting, find a structure that meets your needs, bring in your equipment, hire your people and get started, you know, that might be a one and a half to two year process between doing that, filing all the governmental paperwork, creating your legal entity, things like that. If on the other hand, you're doing a more traditional greenfield sort of thing where you say, look, I can't move into an industrial park. I need something that's a little bigger or more complex. And you have to find a piece of land, dig a hole in the ground, do lots of civil construction, and then do the rest of the stuff. You know, as you said, that's probably another year, year and a half uh, to get that done. So, you know, sometimes you can get lucky. 18 months from the day you want to do something, you can be in business. Other times, a three-year or maybe even a four-year timeline is more reasonable if you're doing something that's larger. So, for example, one of the American companies that I took down to Mexico in the early 90s, was the sort of thing where all we had to do was find an industrial park. A year and a half later, we were in business. When I've had to build a factory, so back during my career, when I worked for, for companies that required you know, big pieces of land for big industrial projects, it can take a year just to find the right site that has all the, all the right economics and, and all the other benefits that you need. And then you get involved in a construction project, which you need, can easily take a year or two, hiring your people, training your people. You know, that can be a three or four year process. How does it compare to setting up a factory in China or engaging Chinese manufacturers? Is that a quicker process and easier? I'm not sure it's any quicker. You know, when you're doing something in China, the government is involved to a much greater degree than it might be in some of the countries on this side of the world. That's good and bad. I mean, obviously when the government is involved, there's usually a lot more bureaucracy, but again, there are people that can, that can help you with those things. My personal experience has been that if I'm building something where we're actually digging the hole in the ground and doing construction, it takes a little bit longer in some place like China than it would in some place like Mexico. If, on the other hand, you're just sort of doing the plug-and-play option, find some place that's already built, move your machinery in, it's probably a wash. It's probably just as easy in one place as the other. Understanding that I think the cultural complexities are a little bit more significant in China. But you know, they're another country that has very well-developed programs and processes through which foreign companies can, can come and get started without a whole lot of heartburn. Coming to the end of the interview, I want to discuss labor costs. A lot of the plants are experiencing labor issues because so much manufacturing is coming down. So a lot of the skilled laborers are getting plucked away from the new plants and labor costs are going up. Labor demands are going up. Labor shortages are there. What are some of the labor supply and cost trends that you're seeing? And 
how does this compare to what it was like in the past from a from a labor supply and cost perspective? And lastly, any future predictions on where you see all this going? Uh, are they going to build technical schools? Are they going to do training in America? How is this going to be ameliorated so we can double, triple, quadruple the amount of U.S. manufacturers currently in Mexico? Getting back to the, the first thing that you mentioned, labor costs, the prime the primary motivating factor for looking to do something like this, in my experience, has typically, typically been based on the search for affordable labor. So there's guys like me that go back 30-some years, and we've really been trained to look all over the world looking for good sources of cheap labor. If you're making a product where the labor component is a significant part of your cost, and some businesses that's not the case, but in the ones where I've worked, uh, that's almost always been the case. So if you're able to save money on labor, labor's a huge part of your final cost, and you want to look around, scan the horizon, say, where can I get some less expensive labor that still meets my needs in terms of quality and skill set and things like that. And this has changed a lot over the years. One of the things I have noticed is that everywhere I've worked, every continent, once this process gets started, labor costs tend to rise. That's sort of a universal. So when I first started doing business in Mexico, labor was very cheap, as it was when I first started doing business in China. But as more and more companies come, there's more competition, those costs tend to rise. It's still cheaper than it is to do it in the United States, for example, but standards of living tend to rise, Ex workers' expectations tend to rise. These are good things. You don't want to exploit the people that you work for. You want to pay a, pay a fair wage, but you don't want to necessarily overpay, which is a problem that you find with some new entrants. You get to places that are sort of famous centers for international manufacturing, places like Monterey, Mexico, and you find there's a lot of competition for a fixed size workforce. So if I'm setting up a new factory and I need to attract people, it's natural to say, well, we'll pay a little bit more than our neighbors. And so you see lots of people taking a job, work there for a while, another factory comes along, they pay a little bit more. So there's a lot of transiency in this. And that's not a good thing because it, it injects a level of instability, but it, it does happen. And I've seen that happen a lot in Mexico. When that happens, and if you've been through that a few times, then maybe a smart guy says, maybe I find a different city this time and sort of expand my horizons a little bit. I mean, you're talking about Mexico. It's a very large border. There's a number of places that you could go. Everybody does not have to be in the same place. But it's easier if you go someplace where lots of Americans have gone before and there's lots of people who can help you out. So these are the things that you have to balance, whether you're talking about Mexico or anybody any place else, the labor costs do tend to go up over time, but still always cheaper. I know when I started working in Mexico, the rule of thumb was I could employ a worker, pay him well, fully loaded for a week for about the same rate that I would pay an American worker for a day or two. Now, it's not that different anymore, but as recently as a week or so I was looking, and I think the ratio is still about five times, an hourly rate fully loaded here is about five times more in the United States on average 
than it is in, say, the northern part of Mexico, which is still a considerable difference. And you can still be paying a good livable wage. I'm not talking about sweatshop kind of wages, but a good livable wage with a job that somebody would be eager to get. In terms of predictions, you know, one never knows where, where things are going to end up. I do think this thing that we're seeing right now of people taking a second look at Mexico does have legs. I think there's lots of good reasons to do it. I'm involved in five or six projects right now where I'm working with people who have been in Mexico, either abandoned Mexico or reduced what they're doing in Mexico, gone to Asia, and are now taking a second look at the Americas. And uh, yeah, I think it will have legs. It, it becomes a question of balance after a while. And I think what we found through the pandemic is that if you're really Asia-reliant or really China-reliant, and the sorts of things that we just saw happening in terms of supply chain happen again, maybe you want to balance that out so that everything isn't so, so far away. The political climate is changing right now. The sentiment about China is probably as negative as I've seen it since before Nixon opened up China back when he was president. And it, I'm sure it will settle down, but I don't know when it will settle down or, or the degree to which it will settle down. Right now, those of us who do lots of business in China watch this every day. Usually what happens, there's a lot of saber rattling, especially among the politicians. But at the end of the day, economics usually wins out. Smart people try to do smart things. And my experience has been Fighting with each other is generally not the smart way to go. Finding a way to coexist, especially when we're so mutually dependent, seems to be a more rational way to go. And after some period of time, after the fire has died out and the saber rattling has died down, you'll find people say, okay, let's get back to business. That's why I love this work. Well, that's a great note to wrap this on, David. Thank you so much for sharing your valuable insights with the audience. You spent decades gaining these and you just shared them for free. So the audience should be grateful and I'm very grateful that you took the time. Can you please tell the audience how they can reach you? And I'll put those links in the episode description. And is there anything else you'd like to share today? Well, first of all, John, thanks a lot. I always enjoy talking with you and, it, and it's been fun this morning as well. I mean, I do a little bit of consulting in between my corporate jobs and I have a company called Consult Work, which is K-O-N-S-U-L-T-W-E-R-K-E.com. So I do have a website. Anyone can look at that. It sort of tells the story of what we do in different places that I've worked. And certainly anxious to answer any questions that any listeners might have. Thank you again, David. All right. Thanks a lot.